0: If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you don't own a Bible, there should be a hardback Bible in front of you. Uh, If you don't own one, that is a gift for you to take. Uh, We want to get a Bible in everyone's hand uh, as much as possible, and so uh, please consider that yours. Um, But to look at our passage today in Romans chapter 8, we're going to be looking at verses 28 to 30. And while you're turning there, uh, we're in a series in Romans looking specifically at chapter 8, and we're spending nine weeks in this. uh, And the title of our series is called uh, Eight Reasons to Rejoice in the Gospel. And so every week, we're just taking a look at one reason to rejoice rejoice. And uh, for me, the experience has been almost like when you're a kid and it's Christmas and, and every week I get to uh, unwrap a present and really uh, enjoy playing with it and enjoy, uh, again, just uh, being satisfied in the gospel and, and, and considering it in a new way. And I've been praying the same for you as well. Today we're on Reason uh, 6, to rejoice in the Gospel, so would you stand with me now as your act of worship to read and receive God's Word as He speaks to us and we, His people, listen to Him. Hear now the reading of God's Word from Romans 8, beginning with verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, friends. And would you join me in one more prayer as we ask God's blessing. Father, without your spirit present, With us and in us, we would be deaf to your words. And so we ask that by his illuminating power, he would help us to understand what you have spoken to us that it would bring comfort to our souls, that it would challenge us from maybe wrong ways we've thought about things, that it would convict us, Lord, uh, not just of sin, but it would convict us about how great and good you truly are. And I pray in all these ways, as we hear your word and pay now, uh, and give our attention to what you have written and spoken, that our hearts would sing your praises as we hear the voice of our God, our Creator, our Father, our Savior, and our Redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in 2017, uh, I went on a vision trip with the Southeast Asia Partnership, and um, the night I returned, I, re- I remember this. The night I returned, I, I landed in JFK uh, in New York, where uh, Deacons Rock and Dan came uh, to pick me up, and uh, it was uh, it was a long trip, an exhausting trip, and I remember when, as soon as we touched uh, the wheels on uh, in JFK, I just I just wanted to be home, uh, but of course, as things would go, as soon as we land. Uh, were delayed on the runway an additional hour and so we just sat there on the plane uh, and then by the time I got through customs and I called Rock and Dan uh, it turned out that their car battery had died as they were waiting for me and so now they were waiting for roadside assistance so I sat in the airport for about another hour um, and then of course because we were in JFK it took about another hour and a half uh, to come back home and I remember getting home it was 3 a.m. Um, it had been 14 days Days since I had left uh, my front door uh, in those 14 days I had spent 75 hours in airplanes uh, I had been on nine flights I visited four countries eight cities countless villages I preached how many times I don't know I pretty much slept in a different hotel every night in a different bed in a, on a different pillow And I was so sick, Um, I was tired, I was spent. I had to preach that Sunday. And I remember when I got home, uh, what I wanted most was just to lay my weary head on my pillow, right, in my bed. And when I did, there was no feeling of greater comfort and greater security. Now John Stott points out that our passage today, these verses in Romans 8, is the pillow on which we rest our weary and tired heads. That's the power of Romans 8:28. You know, having endured like the ups and downs of life and, and weathered the storms and all the chaos that life throws at us, Romans 8 is truly the harbor of our souls. And it's not, and it's this, not because it tells you something amazing about yourself. It doesn't tell you something about yourself and your ability and strength to overcome. It has this effect because it tells you something amazing about God and what God is up to. And when you know what it is God has done for you and what it is God provides for you, He gives us the sixth reason to rejoice in the gospel, and that's this. Those called in Jesus Christ have a full salvation. Those called in Jesus Christ have a full salvation. And this means that what God did for you is not just limited to a single uh, supernatural intervention at one point in your life. That the only thing God did is that when you were convicted of sin and you called out to Jesus that he saved you, It's not limited to that. But God's saving activity began in his sovereign initiation in eternity past, and it continues until your secured consummation in eternity future. There is no part of your life where God takes his hands off the wheel. There is no part of your life where he's lost sight of you. You know, even in your own experience with God, when you've lost sight of him, when you've lost track of God, when periodically we've forgotten about God, the good news is that God himself, from start to finish, has not once taken his eyes off of you. He's not once removed his hand from off of your life. From foreknowledge to glorification and everything in between, God has been working out your full salvation. That's our topic today. And so with that, let's begin looking at verse 28. I encourage you to have your Bible open. In verse 28, Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is one of the most famous passages, verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 28. If you don't have it memorized, I'm sure if you hear it, you know exactly that it's from the Bible. And you'll know why. Just listen to the utter assurance that this verse promises. Paul is saying all things in your life, all things that have happened to you, all things that are happening around you, God works those things together for good. So what is the good? What is the good for which God is working these things? And the good is your good as it aligns with God's glory. What is the good in which God is working all things toward? Your good. It's your good as it aligns with God's glory. And what I mean by this is that as God is working all things together, it's leading to his highest glory, which always works out to be for your highest good. They come together and that's important because things in this life, things in your life, they don't mysteriously and, and mystically have a way of working themselves out naturally, on their own. They are worked out. They are acted upon. It's naive and it's actually falsely optimistic uh, to believe that all of life and all of its variables, they just line themselves up for your, for your good. Because, because here's the thing, like... If there is no God and we live in an impersonal universe, an impersonal reality, then you can never assign purpose or intentionality to anything in the world. You you, you can't. There's no ground. There's no basis for it. You know, I've heard people say to me, well-meaning people give this counsel, hey, it'll be okay. Things have a way of working themselves out. Now, that may sound comforting, but if you actually think about it it's, it, it's not. There's no reason why anything should work out for my good. It's just wishful thinking. And it's unless you have the promise of something like Romans 8 that God Himself is reassuring that behind the scenes He's working all things together, but unless you have that, there is no comfort, no counsel in hearing, hey, things will work out for your good. Don't worry about it. But the Christian has this confidence that everything in life, things that could otherwise be lethal and harmful, have a way of being rewritten, repurposed to be for our good. Now, now here's the important thing that Christians need to therefore note. That does not mean that God will spare you, spare the Christian of tragedy and sufferings in life. That's certainly not the case. But it means at least this, at least this. Everything in your life, including the tragedies and sufferings, are spared of meaninglessness. You're not spared of tragedies and sufferings, but your tragedies and sufferings are spared of meaninglessness. There's a guarantee that there's a purpose and an intentionality behind the way God is using things in your life that are beyond your understanding and beyond your wisdom. Now, it's really easy in life to perceive open doors and opportunities and and offers and, 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 and love and promotions and health and wealth and all these things. It's easy to see those as gifts of God. It's easy to see that that is a way in which God is working favorably in our lives, working for our good. It's so much harder to believe that closed doors and rejections and animosities and demotions and sickness and illness and struggles, that those tragic, painful realities can equally be gifts that God is using in our lives to produce something in us and in others. Now, Tim Keller um, has written somewhere something really really helpful about how to understand Romans 8, 28. And he he basically says, uh, this verse gives us a balanced view of suffering in life. Because he says, on the one hand, it, it means this, when hardship and trials come your way, a Christian can never experience that and go, why is this happening? What is God doing? There's nothing good that can come out of this. Because if you think that way, verse 28 is actually correcting you. Because it's saying we live in a personal universe with a personal God who is working things out for good. And you just need to be humble enough to admit that you're too short-sighted to actually see what that good is. You have to be willing to admit that you can't see far enough down the road to understand how he's going to work things out for good. And it's humbling to us because it forces us to admit that we don't know a lot. And it's because we can't see from God's vantage point that suffering seems so senseless and pointless to you. I remember one time I was driving down the road And the car in front of me, just out of nowhere, it it veered left into the opposing lane, and then it veered right again. And being behind him, right behind him, seeing all this take place, I was so angry. I got really, you know, road rage in that moment because of the carelessness of the driver, you know, the danger he put himself into, he put me into, he put others into, and you know, my first uh, assumption, my natural reaction is judgment. And I thought, this guy is on his phone. He must be on his phone, and he lost sight of the road, and you know, therefore, Verved in and uh, veered in and out of the lanes. I sign all kinds of negative emotions to the driver, uh, but it was only after he came back into his lane that I realized what he had done. He was swerving out of his lane into the other lane and back again because in the middle of the road was a massive deer carcass. And by the time I saw it, it was too late for me to swerve out of the way, and my car went right over it, and at that time I was driving a a Civic, which doesn't have much clearance, and so the thickness of the deer was thicker than the clearance from my car to the road, and so I went over my car lifted up, I felt the body, all the scraping sound under my undercarriage just like thump down. And it was such an incredibly humbling experience because you know, I had judged that car in front of me. From my limited perspective, I didn't see all that he saw. I could only see what was in front of me. I didn't see what was two cars ahead. And so what seemed so senseless, pointless to me, made complete sense to him, to people coming on the other side, from anyone looking at a helicopter from above, anyone who could see the whole picture. Romans 8 is telling us something like that, that God is up to something for good. And even when we don't understand, he does because he sees the whole picture. And it's simply because we're not given that insight that we're called to, by faith, trust in a promise like Romans eight twenty-eight. So on the one hand Christians should never curse God as if the things he sent our ways are are pointless and senseless but on the other hand that also means Christians don't overly treat uh, suffering and hardship in life as, as uh, a good thing as a noble or a virtuous thing and to wear those things as a badge of honor you know Christians shouldn't minimize suffering by praising it or seeking after it because look again at what Paul says it says here God is working out all things for good. He's working on all things for good, and included in all things are bad things, evil things, and broken things. Paul doesn't say that God is working on all good things for good. Right? He's not calling the suffering we endure good. He's not calling cancer and divorce and miscarriage and abuse and, and being fired and persecution and a strange relationship. He's not calling those things good. They are accurately not good. They're evil. They are awful. But but what is happening is God is repurposing them as only he can for a reason that'll lead to good. And so all the experiences of suffering that we endure in this broken world that are hurtful and harmful, because God is sovereign and he cares for us, he is working them out to be something that is helpful. And to know this and be aware of this, here's what it must, it needs to change your view of suffering and your view of the suffering of others. It needs to change the way you self-counsel and the way you counsel others because it means this, it means you don't ever rejoice at sufferings. You grieve at suffering. You weep because of suffering. A no, wise counsel means you never call good what is evil and sinful. And yet in suffering when you remember Romans 8:28 you can have a rejoicing spirit. That you don't rejoice at suffering but you can rejoice in suffering. Because God is and will produce something out of it. You know, this, this verse must be the lens that every Christian puts on by which you interpret and experience the world because it's given as a gift of assurance. It says here, for those who love God. Now, by this, let me just make this clarifying remark. When it says, for those who love God, um, we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. Paul doesn't mean, uh, as long as you're loving God, things work together for good and then tomorrow if, if you're not loving God then those things weren't work together for your good because if that was the case this would be the most uh, frustrating unassuring passage of the Bible it, it would drive people crazy like am I loving God enough today and if I am can I be sure that things are worked together for good but oh no today I'm not loving God and so am I not sure that things aren't going to work for my good no that's not what it's addressing it's addressing those who love God but, but, but who are those who love God And the answer is this, those who love God are those who have first been loved by God. Who have responded to God's love. And we know that because Paul actually makes these two parallel statements which say the same thing. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then who are those who love God? For those who are called according to his purpose those who love God are those who are called by God and the question is okay well then how are you called by God and this is what Paul goes on to explain in verses 29 to 30 that's why verse 29 starts 4 it's connecting the two and the singular emphasis of those two final verses is that salvation is something God alone does for us God does the working out we do the receiving and Paul doesn't let the reader misunderstand this. Just listen to verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is this saying? Salvation is God's thing. Salvation is God's gig. It's what he alone can do. And we have no part in it. And one really helpful illustration of this is what's said by uh, 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 Donald Barnhouse, who used to be the pastor at 10th Presbyterian. And and, he, and he, he basically says, uh, he, he tells of, of this uh, city uh, outside, uh, not city, this uh, Augustinian monastery uh, that was built outside of Madrid in Spain. Um, and for centuries, you know, a lot of kings were, were buried there. And when the building was first constructed, the architect um, who was in charge of building it uh, created, designed this, this arch. And it appeared, uh, it appeared so flat of an arch that the king uh, was worried that it would, it would fall apart and so the king ordered the architect to add a column in the middle uh, to keep the arch up to support it. Um, because, you know, he, he didn't believe it could stand up on his own. He thought it would eventually crumble. Uh, now, of course, the architect, he objected. He had done the design. He, he knew all of the physics behind it. He insisted, we don't need it. But the king insisted. And so the column was erected. However died and a couple years later the architect then revealed safely after the king had passed, that the column that he built it never actually touched the arch arch. that if you looked really closely, he had built the column straight up and where it was supposed to meet the arch. he had built it a quarter inch short and so that it never actually supported anything. The column just stood there and he did this to prove that the arch never needed any outside help. Now, if God is the architect, then our salvation is the arch. He has planned it so perfectly from beginning to end that there is nothing else needed, nothing else we can contribute, nothing else we can do to support it. Nothing we do keeps it from crumbling. It's fully and it's entirely held in God's hands. Now, these verses, 29 to 30, they, they give us a kind of step-by-step playbook by which God saves us. That when God went all in to save you, he, he, he thought of everything. There wasn't anything that, that, he, that he didn't plan or, or overlook. And, and it this makes sense that, that when God plans out your salvation, uh, that he does it in full, he does it comprehensively. Why? Because if what he was going to pay for your salvation was the cost of his own son's life, then trust me, God was not going to say, okay, i got to pay you know with my son's life and then kind of half-heartedly go about planning your salvation and then forget to take care of this detail down the road that might jeopardize the whole thing no if God's going all in with his son he's going all in with his plan he's secured for it all he's outlined your salvation perfectly You know, uh, when I was in seminary, I was a teaching assistant for a class, and and one of my responsibilities was to grade the final exams. And uh, this meant that at the end of spring semester, when we were all done with our finals, and everyone had the joy of starting uh, their summer break, I had the joy of reading hundreds of handwritten blue book essays. And I quickly realized, my conclusion is, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are two kinds of students. There are those who, when they approach an essay, Um, They approach it like a stream of consciousness exercise, right? Everything they could possibly think of on the topic, they write down. No outline, no structure, no transition, no introduction, no conclusion. Pretty much in essence, if they recognize a word in the question, they write everything they know related to that word. Just a massive mind dump of information that they could recall. And then there are those who took the time to write a thoughtful response. And and you could literally see and know that they did that because on the blue book and the inside covers, they will have jotted down outlines of how they were going to answer the questions. They kind of mapped out where they were going. And these essays, they are a delight to read, right? They had a thesis statement and and paragraphs. (laughs) Paragraphs. Transition words. I love those essays. and I'll leave it up to you to, to let you know who got the better grade. But you see, some students, they started without a clue as to where they were going to end up. And to be honest, by the time I finished reading, I had no clue where they had ended up. But then there were others who planned exactly how they would tackle the question. They had outlined it from start to finish, and it was easy to follow. It's easy to know they knew exactly what they were doing. When it comes to your salvation... Verses 29 and 30 are telling us that God is this latter kind of student. In the beginning, God perfectly outlined what he would do to secure your salvation for those who are called according to his purpose. The God's salvation project began with a plan. He didn't just wing it and figure it out along the way. And theologians have a name for this. They call this the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation and essentially this outline this chain has five links to it God foreknows God predestines God calls God justifies God glorifies God foreknows he predestines he calls he justifies and he glorifies and then every link in the golden chain it is God who is doing it so let's look at each one of these now Begins with foreknowledge. Now, here's the thing about foreknowledge. When we think of foreknowledge, uh, we tend to think and imagine God's ability to know the future and everything that's going to happen. If I say foreknowledge, you're thinking of God almost like uh, looking at a crystal ball. He knows what's going to come up. But foreknowledge isn't primarily a cognitive word. Foreknowledge is primarily a relational word. It's an uh, affectional word. Because actually, a better way of translating foreknowledge is to Foreknow. That God foreknew us from eternity means that from eternity, he decided to set his love on his people even before he created us. And, and some of you are going well, I don't really get, well, fish think about it this way. You know in that famous story uh, in, in the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is warning certain people and he says, you know, on the final day, you're gonna say, oh, I did all these things for you. And Jesus, what, what is that, that scary thing he's gonna say? He's gonna say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. No, when Jesus is going to say, I never knew you, that's not going to say like, oh, I didn't know you existed. I wasn't sure you were there. I wasn't aware of you. It's not a knowledge issue. I don't know you means I don't have a relationship with you. I don't love you. So so the fact that God foreknew us from the beginning means that God determined before we were ever created that he would love you and create and form a covenant relationship with you. And that's absolutely humbling because, because God's foreknowledge means that before you ever did anything for him to make him love you, he had already decided to love you and that also means that before you did anything to make him hate you he had already decided that he would love you the starting point of our salvation is God's unconditional unmerited love it's a wonderful place to start God foreknew us Then Paul moves on to God's predestining. Now, everyone kind of squirms in their seat when when they hear that word. You know, what's the preacher going to say about predestination? Nothing. Let's move on. Um, (laughs) No, we, we have to deal with it. So when we deal with it, how do we deal with it? We deal with it as it says in Romans 8. In Paul's golden chain of salvation, he says that those who God foreknew, those who he set his love on, they are those he predestined. So the first, what did God predestine us to? And it says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That God predestined, he committed himself to sanctifying his people so that one day we will radiate beautifully with the image of Jesus Christ second, what did he predestine them based on? And the answer just comes from following the chain. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he foreloved, he also predestined. It's God God did not predestine people based on their merit or work or their effort. God didn't predestine people based on how hard they would try, how seriously they would take their faith, how much they would sacrifice for him, and how faithfully they attended church. God did not predestine by looking into the future and seeing if people would believe in him or not, and then seeing if they did or didn't, then make his choice. God's predestining act was based on whom He decided to love and enter into a relationship with in eternity past. It essentially put God predestined based on nothing other than His own grace and His own mercy. You did not make yourself eligible. God does not save the elite, but the elect. In fact, we don't make ourselves eligible. We really only disqualify ourselves. But God has set his love on us for reasons we don't understand, and that's why we call it grace. That's why we call it undeserved. That's why we call it unconditional. Those whom he foreknew and foreloved before the foundation of the world, because he chose to love them, he predestined them. And those whom he predestined, he also called Now, in order to make sure we reach the goal to which he predestined us, he made sure not only that we externally heard the gospel, but that we internally received the gospel. The fact that it says God calls means God is working it into your hearts. And this is what they call the effectual call. He affects the response in people's hearts that he wants from them. He he doesn't just leave it up to you. You know last June we had Lansdale Day and we had the booth set out over there on Main Street and we did a bunch of raffle prizes and uh, you know I was a bit surprised at, at this um, discovery I had when we would ask for people's contact information we asked for email addresses um, there are a lot of people who don't have emails um, and so you know they gave us phone numbers and as it turns out when we drew the raffle prizes a lot of the people who had phone numbers only are the people who who won the raffle prizes and so you know so I did things i did something i had, haven't done in years a foreign thing uh, i used my phone to call um, and i made the calls i think there are about four or five numbers i forget exactly how many uh, of the four or five i called uh, do you know how many people picked up one and for everyone else, you know, I left in my, you know, kind of like radio DJ voice, like, hello, dear winner, you know. <laughs> and I left voicemails, and of the, you know, four, three or four that I left messages for, do you know how many called back? Zero. Zero. Now, maybe my attitude is wrong, but but after calling, you know, once or twice and then leaving voice messages, you know, I couldn't help but think to myself, Well, it's your loss. Like, like if you don't want this prize, I'm calling to tell you you want a free prize and I'll mail it to you. I'll drop it off. Well, I won't drop it off. I'll mail it to you. You know, if you don't want to receive that, then, you know, like, it's not my loss. So, okay. All I can do is call and then leave it up to you. And so I'm still waiting for their callbacks. (laughs) But but that's our attitude. That's the human attitude, the human approach. You you call every time, you, you know, they don't pick up. What can you do? But do you know what Romans 8 is telling us? That God is thankful, thankfully not like us at all. It's saying that when God calls a person inwardly, He's effectually calling us, He's drawing us to Himself. Right. This is different than the general call. The general calls uh, the way in which the gospel goes out. you tell somebody about the gospel, and they just general the external. They just hear it outwardly. But Romans eight is talking about this internal, effectual call by way in which God is working in people's hearts and his uh, in, in their spirits. And and the thing about God is, he, he doesn't just leave a message for you and then wait around to see if you'll respond to him or not. Those whom he set his love on, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, he effectually called. It's like this. God calls us. And just in case he comes over our house and he picks up the phone for us, And he hands it to us. And just in case we fumble, he brings the phone up to your ears. And just in case you don't know what to say, he opens your mouth. And just in case you don't have the words to speak, he fills your mouth and responds for you, hello. And you answer the call. When God calls his people, they always respond. God makes sure of it. Then what's next? Those whom he called, he also justified. Now, to be justified means that when God looks at us, he counts us as righteous. God justifies. We don't justify. Because if it was up for us to justify, if God looked at you and was going to justify you because of your righteousness, we would all end up condemned. But God looks at us, and he counts the righteousness of another. He credits the righteousness of another as if it was your own, and he looks at you and he declares you righteous. You simply receive it by faith. But here's the thing, the fact that God justifies means this about God, God is both judge, he is your judge, but it also means God is your advocate. That God is your sentencer, but he is also your defender. That God sits behind the bench in his courtroom, but he also pleads your case on the floor. He has a God who is for you. Now, have you ever, have you ever been to court? I've been once. To dispute a ticket. And everyone who stands before the judge, you know, does their best to look nice. To be presentable, to make a good impression. Why? Because you want the favor of the judge. You don't want his or her displeasure, you want their pleasure. And, and, and what do you do to earn that? You know, any, any number of things, right? What earns a judge's pleasure, favor? Right, how, how contrite you look? How sorry you appear? Maybe if you're being, you know, prosecuting somebody from a car, car accident, how, how injured you look. How respectful you speak. Your humble demeanor. What are those acts that you put up to win the favor of the judge? And we all know that there are some, none of us come in loud and obnoxious and in flip-flops and unshaven and not having showered and speaking disrespectfully. We all know that to put on our best behaviors to win the affections of the judge. And yet, in God's courthouse, none of that works. But there's a better news, because by saying God justifies, Paul means that as you stand before him, God doesn't look at you And he's not moved to grace or mercy or forgiveness or compassion because of anything you or don't do. That as you're being tried in the courtroom of God's justice, he looks and he listens solely to your justifier, the one who pleads your case with his righteous blood. He looks at Jesus Christ, not at you And this is good news because it means as you place your faith in him, it's only then that you can hear the declaration of God's sentence over you. You are righteous in my sight. God judges and he justifies, which leads to our last link in the golden chain of salvation, which is those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, chronologically speaking, God's foreknowledge, God's predestining, they all take place in eternity past, before you were created. God's calling, his justifying, take place in history, at some moment in your life. But God's glorifying is solely future. It awaits us in the eternity to which we are all headed. And on that day, in glory, we will be conformed into the image, the perfect image of Jesus Christ. We will be resurrected with renewed, revitalized, perfect bodies that suffer no disease, death, or decay. And although in this life, in this life, we have, through Christ, sin's uh, penalty canceled, removed. We have sin's power broken. And yet we still struggle with sin's presence in us. But on that day in glory, sin's presence will be eradicated from us. And that won't be good. And it won't be great, It'll be glorious. This is the future glory to which God is calling us. The one who works out our full salvation, he is calling you into this glory. And it's so certain, this future reality is so certain that when Paul speaks about it, he speaks about it in the past tense. Did you notice that? In the golden chain, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Although, it hasn't happened yet, although it's still in the future, eternity to come Paul is so sure that God is faithful and he will work out your full salvation that he is speaking about a future reality as certainly as if it already happened. He's saying you can bank on this promise that your full salvation God is working out for you. It's not piecemeal, it's not improvised, it's not extemporaneous, it's perfectly designed, it's flawlessly executed, and it's gloriously certain. The question is, are you rejoicing in this fullness of salvation? Are you reveling in the promise of God's faithfulness to those who are in Christ? That he didn't just come in one moment to save you when you cried out to him. But from start to finish, he is working out your salvation. If you're having a hard time connecting the dots, let me, let me just do it quickly in this way as we close. When you look back down the chain, if you look back, you look down the chain of your salvation, you know that before the foundation of the world, God foreknew you, and he said his love, which he knew would be sacrificial and costly, the cost of his very own son. Before you were created, he knew you wholly. Your failures, your fickleness... And yet, despite those things he predestined, called, justified you. Nothing could change his love for you. That says that you look down the chain. Now you look up ahead. You look forward, up the chain, and you know that he is committed to bringing you into unspeakable, unimaginable, unimaginable glory. That he destined and secured by the blood of his son, that he would take you to a place you didn't deserve to be, to lift you to a position you didn't deserve to have, to enjoy an eternal gift you didn't deserve to receive by slaying his one and only son who alone deserved it all. And why? Why would he do this? The Bible's answer is simply because he was pleased to, because he wanted to, because he wanted you and to give you this full salvation. And so if you know this and believe it in your heart, it changes everything about how you live in the present. To look down the chain of your salvation, to look up the chain of your salvation, changes everything about your moment right now. God who orchestrated your beginning and your end, your start and your finish, he is working out all things in your life right now. All things, including hard things, bad things, evil things, painful things, broken things, seemingly senseless things, he is working out all things for your good and his glory. Because your salvation was not given in part, but in full. And so within that scope, I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know the struggles. I don't know the secret fears. I I, I don't know. But this I know, Romans Romans 8, 28 to 30, is a pillow by which you can finally come and rest your tired and weary head. Because when this world gives you no reasons to rejoice, the gospel gives you every reason to rejoice let's pray father the gospel seems to us and to many to be such a a mystery why you would do the things you would do why you would substitute your son For sinners why you would choose to set your love on those who would run away and betray and forget and neglect you why you would choose to bring us into your presence and to glory why you would choose to give to us eternity in your presence It is a wonderful mystery. And as we consider the fullness of our salvation, help our hearts to respond as we enjoy the wondrous mystery, which is Christ Jesus, the hope of glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. People of God, receive now the benediction. May the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in God the Father Almighty who is working out your full salvation and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you hear the words of dismissal? Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. And Go in peace, friends.